Welcome to podcast episode 217. I'm Stuart McCullough, I'm the CEO of VHAA. Joining me today for this week's discussion is workplace relations consultant, Madeline White. Welcome, Maddie. Hi, Stuart. Maddie, you know the drill. I'm going to show you a clue which will suggest the subject for today's discussion. It's going to come up on screen right now. So, Maddie, for the benefit of those people who are listening to this podcast uh, rather than watching, could you describe what it is that you have just seen? Sure. Uh, it's a video uh, kind of documenting Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones lead singer. Um, and it looks as though it's documenting his many talents, although I'm not quite sure I agree that his acting was mm. fabulous. Um, in terms of linking it to uh, industrial relations, though, um, well, he was performing a number of roles. So he's got his acting, his singing. Um, so it could have something to do with having a split contract, dual roles, um, potentially being overworked, but narrowing it completely down. Um, I can only guess it's something to do performance working in two roles. But yeah, that's my best guess, Stuart. So, so close. So close, Maddie. So. Uh, that is indeed uh, Mick Jagger uh, from a from a film that is entitled Performance, and you're right. Um, uh, his performance in that film is is pretty bad. Uh, it has to be said. Uh, he plays two roles. Uh, so whether or not it's overwork that uh, that contributes to that uh, poor acting, uh, I couldn't couldn't say. But it does take us to this week's discussion, which is man managing conduct and performance um, as as such. So. Uh, today we'll be focusing in on Clause 15 of the Nurses and Midwives Agreement, the, uh, which was previously uh, titled the Discipline Clause, which has been retitled Managing Conduct and Performance. Um, so, Maddie, in terms of its, that change of name, uh, what was the reason for that name change? Uh, is a, a case of a fresh start or are we talking something more like witness protection? The name change uh, is a conscious attempt to move away from the punitive adversarial uh, connotations of discipline. So today we'll be recapping uh, the clause and going over some of the key changes that arose out of the most recent set of negotiations. But let's start at the beginning and clause 15.1, which deals with the application of the term. Uh, it begins by saying that, save for the exemption we'll come to shortly, the procedure in clause 15 applies where an employer has concerns about the conduct, of an employee or a performance issue that constitutes misconduct. Okay, so we're going to come back to some key terms, conduct and misconduct shortly. Um, they're capitalised uh, in the agreement, which means that these are defined terms. Uh, but the clause makes clear that you're dealing with, uh, that when you're dealing with these issues, it's the procedure in the clause that you need to follow. Uh, Maddie, what about local policies? So a local policy might add to the process, but the process in the agreement is the minimum standard that must be met. You can't provide a lesser standard. Uh, and the term goes on to say that there are two steps in the disciplinary process. It does. The investigation procedure, which is about determining what uh, has happened, and the uh, disciplinary procedure, which is about a sanction. All right. And I should preface uh, the following words uh, with spoiler alert. Uh, but there are changes uh, regarding the investigative procedure that we'll be highlighting a little later on. 
Uh, the clause goes on to the issue of representation, though. Uh, it does, and it states that an employee will be provided with a reasonable opportunity to be represented at any time, uh, including by a union, with respect to all matters set out in the clause. Um, so let's discuss the term reasonable opportunity. It's a fair chance rather than an absolute. Uh, if for argument's sake, a representative said that they wanted to attend but weren't available for three months, then we would say that an employer wouldn't be required to wait. So there's a new term at subclause D regarding the need to act in a timely manner. There is. Uh, it provides that an employer will notify the employee in accordance with subclause 15.3B as soon as uh, practicable, following the employer becoming aware of the alleged concerns uh, at subclause 15.1A. So let's discuss that a little bit, uh, a little bit more deeply. As soon as practicable, following the employer becoming aware of the alleged concerns. Uh, it sounds like the critical issue is the employer's awareness rather than when the event giving rise to the concerns actually happened. That's right. You can't expect someone to act on something about which they weren't aware. And uh, turning that around, though, if an employer is aware of something uh, and doesn't act, what this term is saying that you, you can't then do so later. That's right. You can't store a list of grievances and then produce them at some distant point down the track. Um, the example may be given in bargaining uh, concerned a situation where there was a recent concern. Uh, and in addition to that recent concern, uh, the employer proposed a number of historical concerns that had not been acted on uh, and those were added to the letter of allegation. What this term makes clear is that you can't append historical concerns to current concerns. So key point number one, act on concerns in a timely manner. Now, Maddie, we mentioned before the, uh, an exception to the process, and that exception is set out at subclause E. It is. It concerns a person who hasn't comp completed a minimum period of employment. So the obvious question, uh, what do we mean by a minimum period of employment? It's the first six months. Previously, uh, this was referred to as the probationary period, but the Fair Work Act now describes it as the minimum period of employment. Uh, it's worth setting out that under the Act, there are there is a limited period during which unfair dismissal requirements don't apply. Uh, the idea being that the employer and employee can assess whether the employee and their role are a suitable match. There had been instances where an employer had identified early on that it wasn't working out and that they were unnecessary as to whether the stepped out warning processes applied to someone in that six months. So the new subclause E makes it clear that this isn't the case, that the procedural fairness still applies. That's right. You're still giving the employee in question a chance to resolve any concerns, but the stepped process in the clause doesn't apply. Subclause 2 um, does contain some definitions and defines some key terms. Uh, conduct, misconduct, performance and serious misconduct. Let's start with conduct. Conduct means the manner in which the employee's behaviour impacts on their work. What about misconduct? Is that simply conduct that you missed? Not quite. Uh, misconduct means an employee's intentional or negligent negligent failure to abide by or adhere to the standards of conduct expected by the employer. And can performance issues constitute misconduct? The definition of misconduct goes to that issue. It provides that a performance issue can be considered misconduct where, despite all reasonably practicable interventions by the employer, 
the employee is unable to fulfill all or part of their job requirements to a satisfactory level. Well, what's interesting about that for me, uh, what it emphasises is that when it comes to performance, uh, misconduct is not where you start. Uh, it's where you end up after interventions. Uh, in this case, all reasonably practicable interventions by the employer, to be precise. Uh, what about the term performance? That's also defined as meaning the manner in which the employee fills their job requirements. Uh, the level of performance is determined by reference to an employee's knowledge, skills, qualifications, abilities, and the requirements of the role. And the term serious misconduct is, is also defined. Uh, it is, but in this case, it's something drawn from the regulations of the Fair Work Act. So it refers to willful or deliberate behaviour by an employee that's inconsistent with the continuation of the contract of employment. Or conduct that causes serious and imminent risk to the health and safety of a person or reputation, viability or profitability of the employee's business. It also refers to theft, fraud or assault, as well as being intoxicated at work. And refusing to carry out a lawful and reasonable instruction that's consistent with the employee's contract of employment. So with respect to that definition of serious misconduct, it's worth noting two things. Firstly, the definition is not exhaustive. Serious misconduct could be something else other than the things in the definition. Secondly, the Fair Work Act has been amended to, act, to add sexual harassment to that list. Uh, Maddie, that takes us to subclause three, the investigative procedure. What is the purpose of the investigative procedure? It's actually set out in the agreement. So the purpose of an investigative procedure is to conclude whether on balance concerns regarding conduct or performance are well founded and supported by evidence. An investigation procedure must be fair, including proper regard to procedural fairness. So, so that's the purpose. What about the process itself? So specifically, the employer will advise the employee of the concerns and allegations in writing, provide the employee with any material which forms the basis of the concerns before seeking a response, ensure the employee is provided with a reasonable opportunity to answer any concerns, including a reasonable time to respond, advise the employee of their right to have a representative, including a union representative, ensure that the reasons for any interview is explained and take reasonable steps to investigate the employee's response. So let's focus on those a little more closely um, because most disputes regarding disciplinary procedure concern the process followed, at least in part, uh, including whether the employer has provided what it should at this point of the process. When we refer to concerns and allegations in writing, what are we talking about? Something reasonably specific, dates and details, and not just general statements. It's difficult to respond to a general statement. So what's an example of a general statement? Uh, saying that an employee has a bad attitude. It's pretty hard to respond to that. Uh, it is. Uh, I'm mindful that uh, if it were true, uh, that it would have manifested itself in some, some way within the workplace. And the better approach is to describe the events rather than leaving it at a general non-specific statement. Returning to that point uh, about the uh, providing the employee with any material that forms the basis of the concerns before seeking a response, it's worth noting that this is a common point of disputation. It is. Uh, it's essential that employers turn their mind to meeting this requirement. It goes to allowing an employee to respond, not just a description of the issue, but the evidence that supports it. Uh, again, that's about giving the employee a reasonable opportunity to respond. 
one of the questions that does come up uh, is that by doing so, it will probably identify the person making a complaint. And for example, uh, there's often cited a, a fear of reprisal. Here's the thing, an employer can make it clear that any reprisal against a person raising a concern, whether that reprisal is direct or indirect, may be serious misconduct. So the employer has a duty to protect people who raise concerns and make clear that there are potentially significant consequences if those people raising the concerns suffer detriment. The thing is, if you provide concerns that withholds names of those raising the concerns, uh, if those concerns are well founded, the employee at the centre of them will likely know who has complained. Uh, and it's better to expressly support those people uh, than to not address it directly. Uh, Maddie, there's also a new term at 15.3 subclause C. Essentially, it gives the employee the right to, to decline the opportunity to be interviewed where the concerns are not disputed. So in that instance, uh, the employee may agree that the events giving rise to the concern or concerns did, did happen. That's right. And given uh, there's agreement on what happened, there's nothing to investigate. Just on that point, though, subclause D explains what that means for the employee. An employee who does not dispute the concerns and waives the opportunity to be interviewed as part of an investigation is still entitled to be heard on the issue of sanction, if any. So that's an important point. Uh, going back on where we started, the uh, investigation determines what happened, but the decision about a sanction, um, such as a warning, is the second stage. Correct, and the employee is still entitled to raise any mitigating factors, uh, for example, before a sanction, if any, is determined. So the process is more streamlined now, uh, where the concerns are undisputed, uh, but that does take us to 15.4, which sets out the procedure to address poor performance and misconduct. Uh, these are the procedural steps that precede any decision about a sanction. So the term uh, states that uh, this is the procedure that applies. If following the investigation, the employer reasonably considers that the employee's conduct or performance may warrant disciplinary steps being taken. Firstly, the uh, employer must notify the employee in writing of the outcome of the investigation process, including the basis of any conclusion, and provide the employee with a reasonable opportunity to provide information uh, and certain matters in subclause C. So two components there, uh, notifying the outcome of the investigation, including how you arrived at the conclusions that you did, then a procedural step uh, being an opportunity to put things to the employer to be considered before a decision about a possible sanction uh, is made. What things must an employer consider before a decision on any disciplinary action? The employer must consider where there is a reasonable reason related to the conduct or performance of the employee arising from the investigation, justifying the disciplinary action, where the employee knew or ought to have known that the conduct or performance was below acceptable standards and any explanation by the employee relating to conduct, including any matters uh, raised in mitigation. So mitigation is a critical consideration. Um, it's not enough sometimes to show that something went wrong, but the why something went wrong uh, part might mean that there are mitigating circumstances that need to be taken into account. Uh, the clause then goes on, Maddie, to set out possible outcomes. It does. So subclause five describes these. Firstly, it talks about the possible outcomes where the conduct is not serious misconduct. So if it's not serious misconduct, what are those possible disciplinary actions? It's effectively stepped um, from counselling a first, second and final written warning 
um, ultimately accumulating in termination of employment. And it should be said, one of the options open to an employer is to not take action. That is, they may establish that something went wrong, but they may on balance decide not to cancel the discipline. Um, is it expected those steps would be sequential? Yes. Also, uh, that the issues resulting in those sanctions would generally have uh, some connection rather than be completely unrelated. So there might be a different process or a, a different line of disciplinary action if, if it's a completely unrelated issue. Um, that covers off where it's not serious misconduct. Obviously, that takes us to what are the options where it is uh, established that serious misconduct has occurred? So termination without notice may occur or a first and final warning. So why would someone want to issue a first and final warning rather than terminate in the case of serious misconduct? It may be that there were some extenuating circumstances or that the employee is committed to the issue not reoccurring. But just to emphasise uh, that a first and final warning is only available uh, in situations involving serious misconduct as an alternative to dismissal uh, and not in any other circumstance. That's correct. Uh, and any decision will be communicated in writing? It will. Maddie, what about the removal of warnings? Um, these things don't sit on file forever. No, warnings and counselling are removed after a period of 12 or 18 months, 18 months for a final warning and 12 months for everything else. Uh, and there's also a new sub clause 7 regarding performance management. There is. Uh, it explains the interaction between performance management and a disciplinary procedure. So the inclusion of this term follows the decision of the full bench way back in 2015 in the matter of A&MF and Alfred Health. Uh, the reference is uh, FWC FB uh, 3045. That decision uh, went to that issue, but it did cause some confusion, which this clause resolves. It had. Specifically, the issue giving rise to confusion was whether uh, an employee could be performance managed at the same time as going through a dis disciplinary process. And the uh, new subclause reflects that decision? It does. You can do uh, those things simultaneously. However, the performance management can't be used to impose a sanction. If you're considering a sanction, Clause 15 outlines the ones that are available to you. And so this clause now clarifies something that had been a source of, of dispute during the life of the last agreement. Uh, Maybe thanks so much for taking us through the term. My pleasure.